0: Welcome to episode 44 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the vault here. The the cold vault. The cold vault on the campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my good friend, my co-host, my colleague, and the man who will refuse your nomination to be a presidential candidate. That's right. Yeah. John (laughs) Sloat. Doc, nothing going on today, right?
1: Yeah, just a normal Tuesday in American life. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> just you know, nothing, nothing to be you know, you know, anxious about or even curious about. Just a very bland, ordinary, just a bland Tuesday in November, November day as we record on November third, Tuesday of this week, which is in fact election day. Yeah, there's nothing going on, and. We will not be commenting on that other than incidentally perhaps later in the podcast. But
1: – Yeah, yeah. We may make some vague references. Yeah. See if you can find those Easter eggs out there. There first. you go. Yeah. There you
0: go. That's a little teaser alert there. So in any case, we would love to connect with you. And so there are a couple of different ways you can do that. You can find us on Twitter at VNSPod. Mm-hmm. You can email the show, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. It's been a long time since we've gotten a listener email. Yeah. And our Facebook page. We get a little bit more interaction on the Facebook stuff, I think.
1: Facebook, we get a little bit. Twitter, we get a little bit. The email, not so much.
0: Yeah. That's all right. You know, but feel free to send us an email. Yeah. We'd we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. We have in the past actually read Mm -hmm. listener email, but- you know, early early episode. Early, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dave in Oregon, I think, perhaps yeah. yes. And I, I struggle to know how to address this, John, because we are now coming up on nearly a month since we've had a review written on the podcast app in in, in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Now we have had people, you know, coming faithfully and leaving five star ratings, which we love. Which we are so thankful for, but it's been since October eighth, I believe, and here we are coming up nearly in a month since someone has uh, has left us a review. So um, I don't know if we need an intervention with our listeners or what what we need to do on this, John. But
1: I don't know. And you're looking for a written review. I'm correct? looking for a
0: written review, okay. not not just a rating. Which we love those. We love when people we love a good rating. You know, we're we're, we're doing fine on the ratings, but you know if you want to uh to go ahead and leave us a a a review we would greatly appreciate that but so john besides besides it being election day here um what what else is going on in the world we should probably start with sports right cuz that's kind of one of the things that's that we That's sort did, of our right? stick yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, we had week eight of the NFL season. Isn't that hard
0: to believe? We're already eight weeks in.
1: Yeah, and we're recording on Tuesday instead of Monday our normal time. Correct for for uh, for um, uh, athletic reasons. Uh, we had to uh, <laughs> stupid COVID
0: reasons. Um, we had to push it back to push our recording time <laughs> back to Tuesday. Um, yeah. In fact, my my son actually did say, "If you want to blame me publicly on the podcast, for really." That,
1: we can. Okay. So we blame uh, uh, the younger of your two sons. Yeah. Jake. Yeah. Yep, Jake. I know his name. I didn't know if we were willing to say names yeah, on the sure, podcast, why but why not? He appreciates a shout out. Um, it, was, it was his fault. So Yeah. It was, it was his fault. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll pin it on him. Yeah. Um, so week eight, uh, NFL season happened. Yeah. Uh, Buccaneers came back and won last night against the Giants. Um, yeah.
0: So the NFC East is still a, uh, an absolute dumpster fire. It's it's bad, yeah. It's bad. Um,
1: yeah. Who's gonna win that division? If you're, if you, because uh, somebody has to, like, right? Like they have to have a winner, and that person, that that person, that
0: team has to go to the playoffs and host a a, a and, playoff and host game. a game. Yes. I, if you if you force me to pick somebody out of that, I'm gonna go with the Eagles. Who would the you Eagles. go with? Um, probably the Eagles. The, and
1: it's all about the quarterback situation, I, I think. Yeah. Daniel Jones with the Giants throws too many interceptions nope. um, and has shown he's truly uh, the reincarnation of Eli Manning and just throwing <laughs> picks. Though he's got a little bit more speed than Eli Manning. That's true. That's true, as we learned a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe the same amount of coordination. Maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the the Washington football team, they're a mess. They're a mess. They don't. They don't really have a quarterback to speak of. They don't. No. Um, no. Dallas, I would have picked if, uh, if Dak, Dak Prescott was, Prescott was around, yeah. but he he's not. Um, he's not doing well. So I, I think it's got to be the Eagles. I think,
0: but as, as are, bad are, as they look, are they going to win five games and win that division? Five or six? You think?
1: I hope so. That way, I hope the NFL just blows up their playoff thing after that out of sheer embarrassment and just says, "All right, we're going to let in the best X number of teams." Yeah,
0: I don't think that's going to happen, but. In any case, uh, the Steelers are still unbeaten. Yeah. I think that's a bit of a surprise. I think people thought they'd be good, but um, I, I think I, I read somewhere that so they're seven and zero. That franchise has never had a team that's been eight and zero, which is crazy to think, given Isn't their heritage of having those great teams in the seventies. That none of those seventies teams ever got to eight and zero.
1: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I, I mean, I wasn't alive in the '70s, but I, I do wonder. Like, goodness, was competition better back then? Were our teams tanking now that weren't tanking then? I mean, you know?
0: smaller league, so the talent wasn't as spread out. Also, no free agency, so um, you know it was players easier to collect around. players yeah. and and keep them. But I don't know. That seems uh, seems surprising to me. And we haven't celebrated yet the fact that the Patriots are bad. Patriots are two and five. Yeah. Um, They're sitting, I think, at the 10th
1: draft pick right now, the 8th or 9th or 10th draft pick right now.
0: And you're not a conspiracy theorist kind of guy. I'm not. However, when it comes to
1: Bill Belichick, that guy (laughs) is slippery and evil. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if if he's tanking and is going to let the Jets beat him twice. That
0: way they get the overall number number one pick and get Trevor Lawrence. But, I mean – how can you say that about a guy who does those remarkable subway commercials? Right? I mean, Bill Belichick doing those subway commercials now. Well, did you see his press
1: conference? Uh, oh my goodness! Um, um, where where the reporter asked him, just like Bill, what what did you think of this play or Cam's play? And he looks he looks back at the reporter and just goes, "What did you think? I thought about it." <laughs> and the reporter just says, "Thank you." Yeah, <laughs> it was just done.
0: I mean it's clear by now. It's such a game for him. Like that is – I almost wonder sometimes does he get up as much for those moments as he does for actual NFL games? That in his mind, it's this, it's this, uh, this game for him to – how do I stick it to the media here? How do I you know, not give information? How do I just annoy people like that? It kind of was that way for Parcells a little bit, which
1: he's a disciple of, right? Um, And I think Parcells was a little bit of a disciple of uh, Bobby Knight and and how he treated the media. Um, Which was not
0: good. Which was not
1: not good. (laughs) Um, But Parcells was a little bit more aggressive and angry, whereas whereas Belichick is like certainly staunch and mean. Surly. uh, But but doesn't give him anything. Correct. Where Parcells was always good for for a quote.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Um, Certainly, Bobby Knight was as well. Yeah, absolutely. uh, But Belichick, not so much.
0: And so we're we're contractually obligated to check in on the Jets.
1: Yeah, we're 0-8.
0: And who did you lose to this week? We lost to the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget what the spread was on that game. I think it was like twenty four and a half points, something, something, something ridiculous. And like that. I think they still cover – the Chiefs. Still covered, correct? Um, Wasn't it like thirty five, nine, thirty five six, something I, like that? Uh,
1: the spread uh, the Chiefs covered. It was nineteen and a half.
0: Okay. Which, if not that we're into gambling by any means, but like for an NFL game. That's a huge spread. That's unreal. Like that's not uncommon for college games where there's obvious disparities in talent. But for NFL games, like it's not very common to get double-digit spreads mm-hmm. in NFL games, let alone one that was pushing 20.
1: Uh, and the over-under for that was 49 points.
0: Yeah, expecting 42 of that to be from the Chiefs mm-hmm. basically. But uh,
1: it was under 49. Yeah, It was uh, 40, uh, uh, 44. Yeah, forty-four points.
0: Anything else on the NFL before we move on to college?
1: I, I don't think so. The Browns lost to the to the Raiders, and
0: yeah, that was a strange loss in some ways. So the Raiders, I think, are better than we give them credit for. This, it, it's just still weird to, to me that they're playing in Las Vegas. I still have not adjusted to the the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah, but if any franchise was going to move to, to Las, Las Vegas, Vegas, it makes sense that they did.
1: Um. Also, the Colts scored. 41 points this week.
0: Yeah. I'm just not sold though on Philip Rivers being capable of coming through for them in the clutch. So I think the you know, I th- what are they 5 and are they 5 and 2, 5 and 3, 6 and 2, something like that. They're probably leading that division. 5, five and 2, yeah. I think
1: so. Texans are no good. No. Jacksonville no good. Um,
0: Who else is in that oh, division? Tennessee. Tennessee's good, so Tennessee's maybe it's
1: good, but they've lost a couple games. They lost this they week, lost I last
0: think. the last two. Yeah, so maybe they're tied. Maybe Indianapolis and, and Tennessee's tied. But in any case, I mean, the Colts look like a playoff team. But Philip Rivers is the kind of guy that one week will light it up and you know just impress you, and then the next week he'll throw four picks and cost you the game. And I just don't know that with. Indianapolis seems like a team that's kind of built more on the we're going to run the ball, we're going to play good defense, and we need a quarterback who can occasionally make a play. Not quite a game manager, but someone who can occasionally make a play. Sure, but we're not going to win because of our quarterback play, and that's not Philip Rivers. Philip Rivers is more of the like I'm going to determine personally whether we win or lose the game. Yeah, and I just don't think he's a good system fit. But
1: um, do you want to give us a college football update? What happened? I would uh, love what to happen this week.
0: Yes, so Ohio State. Uh, went on the road at Penn State, which is normally an incredibly intimidating place to play. They have the big whiteout. Sure. 100,000-plus fans all in white, screaming, making lots of noise. Uh, Urban Meyer basically said it was the toughest environment he ever coached in. Hmm. And you know he coached in the SEC as well. So uh, he said that from his perspective, he thought that that whiteout – that the sort of environment was worth seven to 10 points for Penn State. Really yes. Hmm. and so that was missing because there were no fans allowed except for you know 500 family uh, yeah, and sure. friends kind of thing. And uh, Ohio State went in and, and had a dominant performance. okay They won 38 uh, 25 and really it wasn't that close. It had more of the feel of a game where they were in control the entire way. Uh, Justin Fields is the real deal. He has, uh, f- through two games, he has as many incompletions as he does touchdowns. That's awesome. Seven.
1: Um, <laughs> and let's let's get your biggest fear out there is that in April, uh, Justin Fields in the draft goes to the Jets, right? That's one of your big
0: fears. That is a big fear, yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: Because a number of Ohio State players have gone to the Jets and have had their careers ruined. Yeah. Um, now that's not uncommon. A number of schools have sent right. It's not unique to players, Ohio State uh, yeah. to the Jets and have, have had their careers ruined. Absolutely, um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's a fear you have, and we'll see if that plays out in April. Yeah, it'll be great content for the pod. if, yes. it, uh, if it happens. Um, um Michigan uh, lost uh, to uh, Michigan
0: State. Yeah, I, I got a good chuckle out of that. Uh, not good.
1: Not good for. Yeah, Jim Harbaugh
0: is uh, in a little trouble there. Um, I think that takes him now to. Uh, something like 1 and 6, one and six yeah. at home against Ohio State and Michigan State. Mm-hmm. And you know those being the two primary rivals that that's a bad thing. 1 and 6 at home and and Michigan
1: this weekend plays Indiana who might be the surprise
0: of the Big 10 darling,
1: yeah, of the college football season.
0: Yeah, and uh, They are, as of this week, ranked 13th, I think, in the – I can't remember if it's the AP of the coaches poll. Not that those polls matter ultimately for college football. But the – this is by far their highest ranking in decades. Decades. And it will be interesting to see. I think that game has got a lot of fun in it.
1: I I think it's got a good narrative to it. Uh, You know, Michigan, if they lose to Indiana, um, it looks bad for Harbaugh. Yeah. um, But it looks great for Indiana.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see how that how that shapes up. Um, it uh, one other big story in college football: Trevor Lawrence, the presumptive number one pick in this year's upcoming NFL draft, uh, tested positive for COVID, so he did not play this past week when Clemson played Boston College, and Boston College led that game for basically three quarters plus before Clemson rallied and won by like. Six points, I think, so the the bigger issue is he's not going to play this next week, and they play Notre Dame
1: uh, yeah, that that's that's a
0: problem. But here this creates a big problem for me, John, because if Notre Dame were to win that game, all of the insufferable Notre Dame fans come out of the woodwork. <laughs> all of them, the insufferable ones,
1: more than just Lee in Indiana,
0: more than just Lee in Indiana, yes. So I'll give him credit. On Twitter, he acknowledged when I said a few weeks ago that Notre Dame was overrated. He agreed with me. So mm, I'll give him credit mm, for a mm. moment of clarity there. Interesting. But in any case, um, I think if you look at the eye test right now, Ohio State and Alabama are the most impressive teams. Clemson has struggled even with Trevor Lawrence. They kind of struggled against a bad Syracuse team. So that,
1: that feels like Clemson's MO though is they
0: like sort of – Muddle their way through the ACC yeah, and, against and, inferior competition, and
1: then all of a sudden they get to the playoff and they're amazing. Yeah, you yeah. Know. So um, we'll see.
0: We probably need to hit this baseball note since, <laughs> um, you know, you're more of a baseball guy. Then this the the World Series came to an end the day after we recorded the last episode.
1: So yeah, Dodgers won the World
0: Series. Yeah. Do you care?
1: Um I, I do care there were there were some Mets farm hand, there was uh, Justin Turner was on the Mets for a long time, okay, um, without COVID uh, on the Mets for a long time um, and uh, and went to the Dodgers and played amazing and I always I was enjoyed watching Justin Turner uh, as a player, and they have some excellent, excellent players uh, so and, and they haven't won since I think '88 uh,
0: so yeah, something and, like that. and they've had some of the best teams on paper and even in the regular season. For the past probably four or five years, five yeah. six years, yeah, and and there was the narrative about Clayton Kershaw being one of this generation's best pitchers in the regular season, yeah. but struggling in the postseason. He had a really good World Series performance, and I'm really
1: glad for Clayton. I think he, I think he deserved a World Series at some point in his career. I thought he I thought he pitched really well, but ultimately, I, I think it's a bit of a bit of a footnote in in a in a week that was long. Uh, Which all the weeks right now feel long. Um, (laughs) So long. So – but let's turn our attention uh, to our main topic uh, today. Um, So, uh, Doc, you just had a book come out in the last 10 days, was it?
0: I did. It was a week ago today. So October 27th was the uh, official birthday of – uh, this latest book,
1: and it feels like this book has a little bit more hype, uh, p-
0: potentially than some other books you've you've published. Uh, perhaps um, I think that part of that is uh, InterVarsity Press, the publisher, has done a nice job with that. And I, I will say as well, I think that part of it is the the quality of some of the endorsements that mm. we got for the book that have helped to spread some of that to get a little bit more buzz on uh, on social media at least about the book. Yeah.
1: So um, I, I'm, I'm sure you'll be on other podcasts at other times talking about the book. I don't know if you have anything booked at the moment, but I'm sure somebody else wants to talk about the book at some point. Uh,
0: sure. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, But we are – this is exclusive breaking news kind of. Like I've not done any – interviews yet about okay. this particular book. So. so this is your first interview about the book? It is, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but since this is
1: also your podcast, I, I'd like to ask you some, some more questions about just your writing process in okay. general yeah. to start, and then we can get into the book a little bit. Sure. Um, and, and I think a g- generic question uh, that I think I always wondered until I knew you, mm-hmm. um, how do you get picked to write a book? <laughs> like, how, how does that even start? Like, sure. w- Like, what happens?
0: Well, there are two broad uh, categories here in the sense that in terms of the books that I've written, this is, this is number eight. So that in those book projects, either I have been asked to write a book by the publisher or by um, maybe the, the series editor okay. on a specific topic. And that's where this current book falls in. So it comes from networking with Correct.
1: A, a, conferences and through your PhD program, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so
0: as I interact with other, um, other scholars in my field, they uh, as they're conceptualizing projects and that sort of thing, and as also as I build relationships with publishers, they, they will approach me and say, um, you know, we'd like you to consider writing a book on this topic. So Uh, For example, this book called Rebels and Exiles, a uh, biblical theology of sin and restoration, is part of a series called The Essential Studies in Biblical Theology. And so the the series editor for that is a guy named Ben Glad, who's a friend of mine from the Wheaton PhD program, Mm -hmm. an excellent scholar, New Testament scholar at uh, RTS – Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, and we actually co-wrote a book called uh, "Making All Things New." And so, he proposed this series idea to InterVarsity Press, and as part of that, he came up with a list of the topics he wanted covered in the series. And he approached me and asked if I'd be willing to write the volume on sin and exile. Okay. And, and uh, let me just say the the other category is i book ideas that i personally have had and i pitch them to a publisher and they decide whether or not they want to publish that or not. And that can take several uh tries with different publishers in terms of different books. So even if you have an established relationship with a publisher, they might say, "I don't know, that's a gr- the best fit for us or I don't know that we really want to do a book on that right now, hmm. and so you end up, you know, kind of networking with different publishers to find that correct fit.
1: Okay. Um, now, when you you were picked to write write this book, you said yes. Mm-hmm. How do you get started? Like like like, <laughs> like, like, like what? When, when do you start typing? When, are you, when are, you, are you just reading a ton about the topic in general?
0: Yeah, I personally um, am a big believer in outlines. Okay, and in. in so when I when I tackle a project like this the the first thing that I try to do is to think about um, what are the the most important things related to that topic and can I sketch out an initial or provisional outline that helps me think about putting some putting a skeleton together that helps me organize my thoughts hmm. so when uh now in in one sense this book was easier in that because i'm tracing a theme through the canon so if you're tracing a theme through the biblical canon it makes sense that you kind of structure the book around segments of biblical history and just kind of work your way through that that way but even then within that you have to start thinking about what are the key passages mm-hmm. that i have to address so I tend to try to do as much on the front end myself before I get into the literature out there that's already been written on the topic. So that it is as much my own thinking as the, as the base and the foundation and that then I allow others – what others have written to uh, correct or enhance or uh, shape what I'm doing. Hmm.
1: Uh, what, what sort of uh, – around writing, what sort of daily writing rituals uh, do you have? Um, um, like for instance, I remember uh, being in a seminar with Jonathan Pennington where he said at the end of every day that he was done writing, he would write out four or five bullet points of where he wanted to go next, save that in the document and he called it parking on a downhill slope. <laughs> um, that way he could get a good rolling, expression, yeah uh, easily the next day. Uh, do you do something similar or do you have any rituals uh, similar to that?
0: yeah so i I don't I don't typically end up writing daily. Um, in terms of when I find time to when I make time to write, it tends to be more um, probably three or four times a week, but trying to get blocks of time of at least a couple of hours. And uh, the primary reason for that is is I find that oftentimes it can take you, even if you do what jonathan pennington suggests which i often do that mm. when i finish writing for the day that i'll try to leave some some bullet points or some things that i'm going to get to that in that the sort of the next stage of the argument or the next part of the para, uh, of that section or whatever uh, i've never heard the expression parking on a downhill slope but that's an excellent uh, a way of putting it so that it's easier to hit the ground running but um it can still take a while to kind of get back into the thought world and the flow of your argument and what you're doing. So I find that having a block of a couple hours is especially helpful to get running up to speed. You know, it's just like – kind of like if you're going out to run, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of a brisk walk, maybe a light jog before you really ramp up and actually like, OK, I'm going you know, as, at the fast pace I want to run.
1: Trevor um, Do
0: you always write in your office? I almost almost always write at home in my study. And uh but you know, at times when I'm traveling, I like to write. There, there's something uh just kind of cool to me about working on a book project in different locales. I mean, you remember from the mystery trip. Oh yeah. Um when we, the, the most recent one when we were in uh in London uh, I spent part of a the day there writing, as well as just even you know when we had little windows in the morning, sometimes before we kind of got the day going, I'd try to get a half hour of writing in or that sort of thing. So um, that was, you know, that, that's kind of fun. But the, the sort of day in, day out stuff is in my study at home. And this is sort of the nerdy part of me um, I keep a Google Sheet. Of word counts, I was hoping to get to this. (laughs) (laughs) So I track word counts of what I write on different projects because I'm always working on more than one book project at a time. So I have a Google sheet that I started back in, uh, I think 2015, of tracking word counts for different projects. You know, so there'll be, you know, there's. Whatever the date is, and then whatever project I worked on, and how many word counts and tracking for the year, how many and for the month, you know every month, how many words am I writing every year how much how much am I writing okay I, I love that <laughs> um, I remember being in a coffee shop,
1: I think we were in Grand Rapids at a conference, yeah. and uh, we were at a coffee shop. I think we skipped out on in a session, and probably you were you were <laughs> writing, I think I was reading and um I, I said, "All right, I think it's. it's the, I think it's time to head back." And you pulled up this sheet and, and put in your word counts, and I was I was asking questions about it, and I, I found it fascinating. Um, so let's let's turn our attention yeah. to the book here. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, Rebels and Exile. Um, what what? If you're going to put it in a thesis, uh, if you're going to give me a one sentence, this is what the book is. Mm-hmm. What, what's the thesis?
0: I would say that there is a. A consistent pattern in Scripture that runs from Genesis to exile, uh, Genesis to exile, Genesis to Revelation (laughs) that um, human rebellion against God leads to exile away from His presence. Hmm. And that there's a very real sense in which a major theme in the biblical storyline is God's effort to restore us from that exile. And that there's this pattern that regularly repeats in biblical history as well as in our own personal experience today that our rebellion against God creates distance, that God exiles us away from his presence because he's holy and because um, our sin distances us from him. And so as a result… I think that pattern repeats on multiple levels, but it is one of the ways you can structure the whole story of the Bible that God created us to experience his presence with him in a perfect creation. and it's our rebellion that cast us away from that. Hmm. and the Bible is ultimately in at one in one in one sense, the story about how God is fixing that and restoring that so that it culminates in us being in a renewed creation experiencing his presence so
1: what's the first instance that you talk about of of in in this in the
0: biblical storyline
1: in the mm-hmm. canon of our experience of exile
0: yeah well it starts in Genesis 3 really after you uh, see the consequences of what Adam and Eve's rebellion against God have produced, the the culminating uh, form of judgment in Genesis 3 is that God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden yeah. and he places these uh, angelic beings, these cherubim at the entry point, preventing their access to God's uh, immediate presence. Hmm. And so it's it starts off right at the beginning – that there, and really there's this pattern that you see, especially in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, where humanity is moving further and further away from God's presence. And as a, and it, that's connected with their ongoing and deepening rebellion against God and his purposes. Hmm.
1: Um, outside of Genesis 1 to 11, and I, I think a slam dunk for this is Israel being exiled
0: from the land, right? Sure.
1: What, what are some other examples of exile uh, that, that we see um, in Scripture?
0: Yeah, I think that um, the one that I'll focus on is – and I think this is – to me, this was one of the more meaningful parts of doing the work on this book is looking at how there's a sense in which you can understand what Jesus is doing on the cross as experiencing exile for his people. Hmm. That through his death, he is in fact experiencing um, exile away from the father. Because he's experiencing the consequences of our sin, our rebellion, and even just the physical uh, description of Jesus being crucified outside the city. You know, the, the, so there's even just some geographical pieces mm, to that yeah, that's where, interesting. where Jesus is taken by the Roman authorities outside of the holy city, and um, you know, in Israel's experience. If, if there was someone who is impure or rebellious or things like that, they were to be taken outside the camp as a physical way of representing their rebellion and God's judgment on them. Hmm. And so there's a very real sense in which uh, through his death on the cross, Jesus experiences our exile away from God. But then his resurrection is the initial phase of our restoration to God's hmm. presence and our ultimate experience of that. And – when you look at the Old Testament, uh, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament about resurrection is Ezekiel 37. It's the the image of the Valley of the Dry Bones. And yeah, it's absolutely about resurrection. But if you look at the context, it's also about return from exile, Yeah, that, that God is going to restore oh. his people and bring them mm. back so that these ideas of resurrection and restoration are intimately connected in the Old mm-hmm. Testament. And that is what... Uh, Jesus is accomplishing through his death and resurrection is that combination of, of realities.
1: Um, in, in the book, you make the argument, and I think it's—you um, make the argument that Peter calls us exiles. He, yes. he says that the Christian church, in a sense, is mm-hmm. exiles, um, living in a foreign land, uh, yeah. wa- waiting to return home. Yep. Um, how does that shape our identity? How does that shape our lives? Um,
0: yeah, that's that's an aspect of our identity as Christians that I think sometimes we as Americans have not fully appreciated, and I'm going to move delicately through this <laughs> because we are on election day, but I do think that there has been a tendency among some evangelicals, some Christians, to become so... Uh, attached to their American identity, that it can actually in some in some ways become more important to them than their identity as a follower of jesus and I think that 's part of what is going on in our in our evangelical culture of wrestling with the realities of politics today that there 's a growing sense of among many believers that we don 't feel at home here, yeah, and part of my argument would be never were. Mm-hmm. Because biblically speaking, we are exiles in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care about what happens in this world. God instructs the exiles living in Babylon plant gardens, sure, yeah. contribute to the well-being of the city, be actively involved in the culture. God tells the exiles living in Babylon to do that. We're to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But this is not our home. And I think that that reminder should help us have a, the appropriate kind of response as we watch our culture deteriorate in certain ways that we can mourn it but not become so despondent about it that we feel as if, well, Christianity's done now if a certain candidate does or does not get in office or a certain set of policies get enacted. And so I think that to me is, was a helpful reminder. Just the reality of we're exiles here. I should contribute to the good of the culture around me. But my, my hope doesn't rest in the success of those efforts. Yeah. Uh,
1: f- final question, a two-parter. OK. Um, a, uh, who, who is this book geared toward? Like what what level of reader um, were you shooting for here? And then mm-hmm. second part, uh, where can they find a copy of it?
0: So I think that the the ideal reader here, the the range, is I think anyone who is interested in uh, I, I'd kind of pitch it as sort of the 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 informed lay level reader. Mm-hmm. So that you don't have to be a scholar to read this. And in fact, it's in, it's intentionally written at a level down or or two from that sort of high level scholarship, where I'm going toe to toe with other scholars about different perspectives and views. And the the length of it tries to contribute to that as well. I mean, it's less than two hundred pages. It's one hundred forty five pages. Yeah, so it's 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 a it, it's something that I think a wide range of Christians can read. Obviously, I think pastors will benefit from this. Theological students will benefit from this, to be sure. But I think that people who are interested in trying to understand how does the Bible fit together can really benefit from this book. Because although this is not the only way of putting the storyline or the Bible line together, I do think it is a faithful way. And I think that the people, as they read this, will see some connections between different parts of Scripture that perhaps before they've not noticed. That's my hope at least.
1: Yeah, it does feel like an underdeveloped area. Um, it doesn't feel like one that's talked about regularly when we talk about the big themes of mm-hmm. Scripture. Um, and where, where can they pick up a copy of this?
0: There's this – small little mom and pop operation named amazon.com have you heard
1: of this um, once or twice yeah
0: okay yeah it is it is available there you can also go on to uh, the intervarsity press website and find it and you can order it directly from the publisher but my guess is is that amazon.com might have the the best price on that but um i just think i, I before we wrap up on this i I want to stress that this book, probably in some ways, was one of the most meaningful writing experiences mm. I've had. In part because um, I, I bookend it with this, with an introduction and a conclusion about this idea of being home—that mm. that we're made for a world that we—I think all human beings have this profound sense of I was made for something better than this. This world can't be the best of what I was supposed to experience. And that sort of profound sense of of longing, I think, is is part of what I try to tap into and explain how the biblical story uh, answers that as we long for the new creation. And I think that as as we experience here in the United States in particular, a perce- perhaps a growing sense as Christians that this world is not our home, mm-hmm. that that's that's actually a good thing, and that that should deepen our longing for. Uh, our ultimate home of the new creation and that that sets our agenda, our priorities, and even where we find – what we put our hope in, what we find our joy in.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to, to decipher where, where is home uh, for, for a number of us. Yeah. I think – um, I was—I remember reading about that in uh, uh, James K. Smith's uh, uh, "On the Road with Saint Augustine," mm-hmm. where "Where is Home?" and and I think you've hit that hit that theme as well um, here in your book here, and I'm sure it'll be a benefit to the church, to pastors, students um, alike. Um, favorite endorsement
0: uh, that you got on this book? <laughs> well, I got to be careful, <laughs> um, but I think the. Um, I would probably go with Stephen Dempster. I was going to pick Stephen Dempster. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't, <laughs>
1: I don't I don't
0: I don't know him especially well, but I think one of the reasons that was probably the most meaningful for this book was the fact that his book Dominion and Dynasty, which is a a sort of narrative reading of the Old Testament, mm-hmm was one of the most foundational and forming books for mm-hmm. me theologically and biblically. And so the fact that he wrote a very kind endorsement of the book was 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 pretty pretty exciting for me.
1: Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um all right, well let's let's transition to closing down shop here a yeah. little bit. Um episode
0: 44. Yeah, so we've got we need actually an athlete. a decent collection of options I know, here. We got, we got quite a list. We we've been wandering in the wilderness a bit in terms of some, some of these numbers in the upper thirties, but as we've gotten into the forties, things have improved. So, number forty four, Hammerin Hank Aaron. Yeah, home run king, whom I still regard as the all time home run king, even though Barry Bonds has sure hit more. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, another baseball great, Reggie Jackson.
1: Yeah, my dad had an autograph from Reggie Jackson.
0: Mr. October. Yeah. Um in the world of basketball, we have several options as well. Pistol Pete Maravich. Maravich. Yeah. One of the most dynamic players uh of his era. And he's a guy that in some ways was ahead of his times when it comes to the 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 style of his play with the behind the back passing and the the no-look stuff and just the uh just kind of the the big personality he was a an incredible scorer as well in fact, I think he averaged something like forty to forty five points a game in college at l s u before the three, the three point, point line. line yeah, that's crazy <laughs> uh also from the world of basketball, George gervin, the iceman hmm. famous for his long arms and his um his um finger roll and then the last basketball player, Jerry West. Jerry West. The logo. The logo. Yeah, if you didn't know, he is the 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 man after whom the 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 NBA logo is patterned after.
1: Yes, although the NBA won't admit that. Yeah, but it's obvious. Um, yes, it is obvious. They probably uh, don't
0: want to admit it because they don't want to get sued by Jerry West. For, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. For using um, his image.
1: He uh, he's also with the Clippers still, and, and yeah. I think he's getting up there. I think he's in his mid eighties that sound right? Is he
0: that old? I mean, he played in the uh, 60s, 60s into the early 70s. I'm not sure how old he'd be. And then uh, our, our one representative from the NFL would be John Riggins. Do you remember John Riggins, the the Washington Redskins, former formerly the Washington Redskins? <laughs> the Washington, the, football the Washington football team. The Washington football team mm-hmm. now. He was their key running back in the, some of their Super Bowl runs in the 80s. Big – powerful back, had some big games in the Super Bowl. And then we have uh, two entries for Ohio State. Dick Lebeau. Who, better known as a coach, right? Yeah. Well, he was a defensive back at Ohio State, but went on to have a long career in the NFL, like a mm-hmm. 40, 50 year coaching career in the NFL. Uh, defensive backs uh, was a longtime defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think he did actually coach as a head coach for Cincinnati for a period of time. And then the other one is Ray Griffin was a safety in the mid-70s, uh, perhaps better known for his uh, being the brother of Archie Griffin, who we'll talk about probably next week. So <laughs> probably. In any case, who do you like out of that list?
1: So Jerry West is 82. Is he really? Man. 82 years old. Hank Aaron, do you know how old Hank Aaron is?
0: Well, he's got to be up there as well, 70s. Eighty-six. No way. Eighty-six years old. Gosh. Um, both still living. Uh, yeah.
1: But uh, yeah, nineteen thirty-four for for Hank Aaron. Okay. Um, where, which way do you want to go? I'll, I'll leave it up to you.
0: Oh, that's tough. We talked briefly about this before the episode before we went on air, but um, I love Hammer and Hank Aaron, uh, but I also appreciate Jerry West the logo. Oh, I know God. that's that's where you probably lean.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to go with age here, you know. Okay. Pick the pick the more uh experienced individual. So let's go let's go Hank.
0: Okay. And I think part of what made him amazing was the fact that the way that he handled approaching and breaking Babe Ruth's record and even just some of the racial animus he faced in the midst of that. Because this was yeah. like early 70s and uh early to mid-70s, and he just he handled himself with with such class in the midst of that. So we're going with Hammer and Hank? I think so. Okay. One thing we liked? Uh, well,
1: this week, uh, for me, uh, on Friday, uh, Steve Cohen uh, bought the Mets from the Wilpons and it became official. Uh, and so Steve Cohen will eventually take over, I think in December sometime or maybe in the new year. Um, he has bought the Mets. And during a time when – uh, the uh, baseball is cutting cost. Uh, nobody has any money because you know it was, a, it, was an, it was a bad year. Right. Um, um, the Mets are now have the MLB's richest owner and are way under the luxury tax um, currently. So they are going to be spenders, and hopefully that means we're going to be competitors next year.
0: Are there any particular? I, I don't keep up with the free agent world too closely. Are there any big free agents that are going to be available? After this season and going into next season, or that, that that you have your eye on that you're hoping maybe the Mets can um, snag. I mean,
1: there's there's two or three catchers that will be available. Uh, one of them is JT Realmuto, um, who's the Phillies catcher currently, who they just can't afford to sign again. Mm-hmm. Um, Trevor Bauer uh, for okay. the Cincinnati Reds will be available. Marcus Stroman, who is already with the Mets. Um, there, I mean, there's a there's a number of uh, okay. a number of uh, players out there who'll
0: be available. Hope springs eternal for for the Mets fan here.
1: Yeah, yeah, always. And we got a new owner. He's uh, morally gray, um, gray. <laughs> Uh but uh, but we 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 have cash to play, even if it's go. dirty cash. <laughs> okay. How about yourself?
0: Yeah. So this past weekend, I had the privilege of going to Columbus, Ohio, and doing some teaching at uh, Grace Polaris Church, which affectionately around here, I refer to as the Mothership, one of the larger churches in the Karis Fellowship, formerly the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches. But uh, more so than than that, which was great, was getting to spend time with old friends. Yeah. So uh, Zach from Ohio, we stayed with him and his family and fun to, to be around his wife, Sarah, and their little kids are adorable. Lots of energy and just oh, yeah. a lot of fun. And we also got to see Nate from Ohio. Oh, did you see Nate? Nate and his wife uh, and their two daughters came down. So it was great to to catch up with them. So um, as I've mentioned before, one of the coolest things about my job is that students become friends and long-term friends that I get to keep up with and see what they're doing uh, in their lives. So awesome. So are we at are we at the mission accomplished point here?
1: I think so. I uh, mean, we've done a lot.
0: Okay, I've talked about myself plenty today, so I think <laughs> I need to need to put a bow on this and, and move on. So, in any case, um, we uh, are calling mission accomplished. And so, until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good.
1: Later.